1: is from a traveler named Maximum Overdrive. He called this one from Zenadu to Kokomo and back. Please allow me to tell you his tale. From Zenadu to Kokomo, I was 12 years old right after the Y2K scare. When I first started seeing the Asian girl at the edge of the woods, she looked about 19 years old and always wore the same long tie-dyed T-shirt with a green weed symbol on the chest. Her hair was always done up in a complicated sort of bun, with wisps that came down over her face. The shoes that she wore were really odd, like little model boats of some kind, with a curved prow. But it was her fingernails that really left an impression on me. They were at least four inches long and curled inward like the claws of some predatory bird. Naturally, I tried asking my parents who she was, but they always said they didn't know and hadn't ever seen anyone like that. But they reckoned I shouldn't mess around with her. One time, my mother was with me when I saw her. She looked right at the girl, just standing there at the edge of the woods, and made a little sound of exclamation. Afterward, my mother claimed that she hadn't seen anyone at all, and accused me of making it up. I was disappointed and confused. I couldn't imagine why my own mother would act like that. I wondered if maybe the girl had actually made her forget. Somehow, the following summer, my Uncle Arthur took me and some of my friends camping in the southern Everglades. Uncle Arthur told us a campfire story about a creature called a squid pope that captured children and dragged them to its ancient chapel on a cliff. We thought it was pretty silly, so he challenged us to come up with something better. I told them all about the strange girl with the talons. I knew it wasn't a scary story but I wanted to see their reactions. At first, they all just stared at me quietly. Then they all looked confused. In a minute, each of them started to chuckle warily. And then my friend Bill started telling a different story about a smelly ape man that lived in the swamp. No one mentioned the girl again, but later. As we made our way to our cabin, I looked towards the woods, and she was there, looking at me. This time she smiled. I saw her several more times over the next few years. She always looked exactly the same and always appeared at the edge of the woods. When I was 15, she started waving to me. I did not wave back. I had become somewhat superstitious of her, wondering if she were really a ghost and more dangerous than she seemed. On the night of my 16th birthday, I tried smoking marijuana, which had been a gift from my older friend, Ned. Suddenly, I became aware that I was no longer alone. The girl was standing there, right in front of me. She was smiling. For the first time, I noticed that she was actually quite attractive. She held out her hand for me to take. The long nails splayed outward. For some reason, I forgot my worries about her possibly otherworldly nature, and placed my hand in that strange taloned hand. She gripped me tightly and pulled me along into the woods. We seemed to be traveling along a path of some sort, though it was not well worn. The night was clear and the moon was full, so I could see a short distance through the trees. I thought I detected a leftward curve as we moved along. I told her my name, trying to start a conversation. She stopped and looked into my eyes, moving her body close to me. Still smiling sweetly, she laid the palm of one hand on my cheek, talons resting against the back of my head. While still gripping my hand with her other, she spoke my name softly. I felt a rush of heat in my face, and other parts of my anatomy reacting to this unexpected intimacy. She giggled in a way so charming that I immediately felt that I would never fear her again. She took her hand from my cheek, laying it against her own breast, and said her own name, Madu. She turned away from me then, and continued leading me down the curving path. I asked where we were going, and after a moment she said Zanadu, with a decisive tone. We walked through the trees for what seemed like hours, but then the trees gave way to vegetation of a different sort. I recognized it by the smell before confirming it by sight. We were in a field of marijuana. At what appeared to be the center of the field was a small dark shack, with a steeply pitched and off-kilter roof, and one door that I could see. She led me in through the door. There was a small fire burning in a fireplace at the other end of the room, which I thought was strange because I hadn't noticed a chimney outside. Also strange was the fact that the place seemed bigger than it looked from outside. Magu asked me to sit by the fire on a low wicker stool, so I did. She let go of my hand and busied herself with some sort of task at a long narrow table that stood against the wall as she pulled jars of herbs down from a shelf. I looked around at the things in the shack. There was an ancient-looking clay pot in a corner that I could reach from the stool, and when I looked inside, I caught a whiff of something very much like beer, though the pot was empty of anything except dust. I returned it to the corner. Other items scattered about included stone blades, long scraps of paper, bones that looked big enough to be human, old iron tools, and a pair of antique railroad lanterns. On the wall across from the shelf, I spied a daguerreotype portrait of a group of Asian people in a very old style of dress. Half-jokingly, I asked Magu if that was her family. She replied yes, and offered no further explanation. Next to the picture was a pair of sharp metal hooks, embedded in the wall at least an arm's length apart. Nearly bare, dried, plant stalks hung on the hooks. I watched her place marijuana nuggets and mushrooms into a sensor with flaming coal from the fire. She came to me, kneeled on the floor, and held the sensor in front of my face. Smoke flowed out from a pattern of seven holes and enveloped my head. It smelled like rotten chrysanthemums and skunk spray, with an infusion of mushroom. I coughed profusely as the smoke entered my lungs and my eyes watered. I looked at Magu, and she was breathing it deeply and contentedly. I began to feel a pleasant numbness, and my vision began to blur slightly as though my eyes were being obscured by white scales. Magu removed my shirt, and I allowed it. Then she removed the tie dye t-shirt that she had always worn and draped across her back. I gazed for a moment at her small pale breasts. She reached out with her talons and pierced my forehead. I knew dimly that I ought to be alarmed. But my numbness was so pleasant that I didn't even flinch. She drew her talons down my face, and as she did so, I noticed that she was doing the same to herself at the same time. She continued cutting us both down the center, all the way to our navels. As she sliced our flesh, her smile widened, till the ends of her lips stretched back behind her ears. Her eyes had become reptilian, with unexpected strength. She lifted me up and hung me on one of the hooks. Then, by some means I did not see, she placed herself upon the hook next to me. She took my hand again. As I watched her, speechless, she began to wiggle and writhe, making a hissing sound all the while. Her face split apart, lengthwise, and a long, sinewy form wrenched itself from the husk of her flesh. Sliding out finally at the slit navel, I felt my own body begin to tremble and soon I was writhing just as I had seen Magu. Soon, I found myself flopping out and falling to the floor. I tried to look at my hands, but I didn't have any. The thing that had been Magu rose up from the dusty floor in front of me, and I saw that it was a white serpent. It was large, but graceful, and had a red triangle on its forehead scales. It slithered close to my face and pressed its snout to my own. A forked tongue flicked out and gently brushed against my nostrils. I looked to my own shadow, cast by the fire, and realized that I too was a serpent. Looking out along my tail, I saw that my own scales were black, in stark contrast to Magu's white body. I looked up at the hooks and saw our bodies hanging there like drying marijuana stalks. Magu slithered alongside me and curled her long tail around mine. She squeezed my snake body in rhythmic pulses until I found my snake body reacting as my human form had in the woods. Something was now happening to me in this serpentine form that had not even happened to me as a human. I became lost in the squirming ecstasy of that supreme moment. I lay in the warmth from the fire, dazed from my exertions. Magu slithered away into the shadows, only to return in a moment with two eggs in her mouth. Only then did I realize how hungry I had become. She squeezed one of the eggs out in front of me, and I swallowed it whole. Somehow, I knew just how to squeeze and break the shell. After we had eaten, Magu beckoned me over to a place in the hearth where there was a large hole. She slithered into it, and I followed. We emerged into a long cave, or tunnel in the earth, just big enough for our serpent bodies to pass through. I followed Magu and had no sense of time. Together, we slid through the bowels of the earth in darkness. Until at last, we came to an opening. We entered a room where flasks of glowing green liquid illuminated several human skeletons in prone positions. An alcove at the end of the room held a statue of a strange deity in the shape of a man, but with fish-like attributes. There was an offering bowl set at the statue's feet, and I realized that we were in a chapel of some kind. It was dirty and dilapidated. The roof was full of holes and sand had blown in from somewhere. But there were signs of recent activity, so it wasn't completely abandoned. Magu appeared to be searching for something. I slithered out into another room, which turned out to be the main sanctuary. There was a dais, faced by many rows of old pews. The room we had entered through was obviously a rectory of some kind. At the back of the sanctuary was a set of large wooden doors. One was broken and leaning open. I slithered out into the night air and discovered that we were on a beach. The night was still clear, and the sky behind the full moon was filled with brightly shining stars. By the light of the heavens, I could see that the chapel itself stood at the very edge of a cliff, and a sand-covered road ran along the edge of the beach that led away from the rise. I looked out across the water and saw several small islands the lesser keys and judged us to be near one of the bites. Turning back to the chapel, I slid over a fallen stone side. The engraving said Kokomo. I returned to the sanctuary where Magu came to meet me. Her throat was enlarged as though she had swallowed some object. I didn't know if she was eating again or if she had found what she was looking for. Suddenly the air pressure changed with an audible pop. Out of the rectory there stormed a terrifying monstrosity. Robed in black cloth, with tentacles and claws a blood redhead in the shape of a bishop's miter it roared as it rushed toward us i recognized this creature from my uncle's story it was the squid pope a slimy appendage darted out and grasped mogul instinctively i struck and felt fangs i had not known that i had sunk into the pulpy flesh of the monster it shrieked and flung me aside my back collided with one of the moldering pews which broke under the force and I collapsed behind it. I shook off the pain and tried to go after the monster again. It disappeared back into the rectory.
2: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
1: with Magu clutched in its abominable claw. As I darted after them, I arrived just in time to watch a bizarre glowing door slam shut and vanish. I didn't know what to do. I waited there until dawn, which may have been my undoing. As the sun rose, I slipped back into the underground hole and slithered back through the cave tunnel all the way back to Zenadu, alone. Once I arrived again at Magu's shack, I was able to return to my human body by crawling inside and pulling myself off of the hook. A wound that had released the serpent healed automatically, although it left a very faint scar. I tried to go home after that, but I found that I am no longer able to go beyond the woods. I can walk to the very edge, just so long as some shadow of the trees touches me. But there is some magical force that now prevents me from going further. I live in the shack now. Whenever I'm hungry, I find mushrooms to eat, and sometimes oranges or other good things are growing in the woods. But mostly I'm just not hungry. I couldn't bear to see Magu's dried husk on the wall every day, so I buried it behind the shack. I have written everything that happened on a scroll of paper from the shack, which I am placing in the beer pot and leaving at the edge of the woods. If someone finds it, I hope they will tell my family. Tell them that I'm alive in Zanadu and that I'm sorry. Now, that was the end of my tale. I hope you enjoyed yourself, listening while escaping the world you live in. That is all for today. Safe travels and a blessed day.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Filet-O-Fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the Filet-O-Fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.